Hello and welcome to the Southeast Passage, a podcast about the history and the society of the Balkans and beyond. I am Andreas Guidi. I'm Elif Pejan. Today's episode is somehow special because it is actually a collaboration with our friends at the Ottoman History Podcast, same as we did for an interview with François Georgeon on the Young Turks that you can find on both uh, platforms. And I know, Elif, that you are a follower of the Ottoman History Podcast yourself, so maybe you can introduce this uh, project to our listeners. It's a wonderful project that we recommend to all of those who are interested in history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East. And for those who haven't heard of them yet, we invite you to visit their website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, and follow the initiative in social media platforms such as Facebook, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Yeah, and now maybe it's time to introduce our guest. I'm very pleased to, to welcome on the podcast uh, Professor Erik Jan Zürcher uh, from the University of Leiden, uh, the Netherlands. So welcome uh, to our podcast today. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Professor Zürcher uh, has the chair for Turkish studies at the Department of Middle East Studies at, uh, at Leiden University. But there is a particular reason why we are hosting this episode in Paris, right Elif? Yes, because Eric Jan Zürcher was invited to our dear Setobak at École des Études en Sciences Sociales and he gave four lectures during his visit and we would like to base our discussion on these four lectures that covers the period from the Young Turks movement till the end of 1930s regarding Kemalist reforms. Yes, and I'm sure that most of our listeners who are working on or are interested in uh, the late Ottoman Empire, in particular uh, the Second Constitutional Period, World War I, but also uh, the early Republican period uh, in Turkey and, and Kemalism, already know uh, Professor Tsurcev's works uh, quite well. Indeed, his list of publication is quite long. I will just remind uh, you maybe the standard work, Turkey, a Modern History, which has recently be been published in its fourth uh, revised edition by Tauris. So as Elif was mentioning, we covered uh, a very broad set of issues in uh, uh, the, the seminars that we had the privilege to attend. I will just um, mention, uh, let's say, the, the most important ones that will uh, represent the core of our conversation today. Uh, first, we talked about uh, the legacy of uh, World War I for the later developments uh, in Anatolia. And then we moved to the question of the so-called War of Independence and the very foundation act of the Turkish Republic. And then we also approached the notion of uh, culture and civilization and how both of them underwent a transformation in the 1920s and 1930s in regards to the uh, Kemalist uh, worldview or Kemalist reforms. And finally, we also uh, touched upon um, the question to what extent um, a tool such as modernization theory can be applied or not to the developments that we will be talking about uh, today. So maybe um, to begin with, I would um, move from First World War in the Ottoman context. I think this is useful in a way because it uh, gives us an impression of actually a longer period of warfare that affected uh, the Ottoman state, beginning with the Italo-Ottoman War uh, in 1911 and 1912, 
all the way to the Treaty of Lausanne, which was basically the international recognition of the newborn uh, republic. Um, so, Professor Zürcher, you approached this um, in regards to several aspects of social transformation, and maybe you can elaborate a bit on this. Yes, sure. Um, I think that looking at the period of the four or five successive wars as one single entity makes a lot of sense. Uh, you could debate it a little bit for the Italian-Turkish war, which was, of course, um, in some ways um, rather far away and very limited, at least on the Ottoman side. But uh, I think it makes sense to look at that whole period of 1911 to 1923 as a single period of war, which, of course, transformed uh, the whole region and uh, the states within it. Uh, but Primarily, uh, at least when we look at what would later become Turkey, the Anatolia, Asia Minor, uh, it had tremendous effects in terms of demographics, but also in terms of economy, mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure. So um, when the Turkish Republic emerges in 1923, it is in almost every respect a scarred country. Uh, a country that bears the, the imprint of 10 years of war in all kinds of ways. Uh, and I think in any understanding of the early republic, that has to be a point of departure. Uh, a bit similar to the period of Abdul Hamid, you might say. Uh, we can only understand the Abdul Hamid period if we take into account that it was a period of recovery after the Great War of 1877-78, in which the Ottoman Empire in Europe almost ended. Um, similarly, the Republic, after 1923, is the child of, these, of this decade of war. Mm -hmm. And I remember you talked in particular about three, um, let's say, indicators of this transformation. Um, maybe firstly, the changing borders that resulted from the de this uh, decade of uh, warfare. Then, as you already mentioned, demographic changes and also new negotiation in terms of political elite. So maybe we can touch upon each of these aspects. Yes, certainly. Uh, the, um, the question of the borders is, is the simplest one, perhaps, uh, in the sense that uh, when the Kemalists develop a national resistance movement after 1918, their claim uh, is very similar to the claims of Eastern European nationalists in the sense that they base themselves on the Wilsonian idea of self-determination for national majorities. And so their uh, imaginary borders are, in a sense, programmatical. Now they uh, base it on an understanding of what the nation is, and in their case, that is the nation of Ottoman Muslims, in which they see Turks and Kurds as constituent parts. But of course, the, the borders of Turkey, as they emerge in reality, are not the product of um, this kind of idealist, nationalist um, thinking. They are the product of power relations, uh, power balances on the ground. And that is why Turkey emerges as it does now, particularly, of course, the borders in the east and the south, uh, where a deal with the Bolsheviks, um, a victory over the Armenian Republic, and again, uh, a year later, a deal with the French on the border with Syria. In the end, uh, produce Turkey as we know it. 
the fact that in 1939 uh, one province, uh, the province of Iskenderun or Hatay, was added uh, to Turkey at the expense of Syria, again is purely a question of power politics. Yeah. And moving to the issue of population, you show that even within uh, Anatolia there are dramatic changes happening both uh, at its eastern and western Oh, margins, absolutely. Right? Uh, because you have the effects of the Balkan War and World War I, um, both in the sense of um, loss of lives in the army, um, but also, of course, the effect of the Armenian genocide and also of economic dislocation in the country as a whole, which leads to hunger and to many civilian deaths. And as a result, uh, Anatolia is a particularly empty country in 1922, um, it has been a war zone uh, itself after World War I, right? first in the east, then in the west. So we're, we're facing a country where population has gone down from about 16.5 million to 13, and maybe 13.5 million. So that's dramatic. And uh, there are many provinces where, you know, over a third of the adult women are widows. Uh, and that tells you enough. So it is a particularly empty country, but it's also a different country because uh, the combined effects of the expulsion of the Greek Orthodox from the West in 1914 and the Armenian Genocide in 1516 and the population exchange of 1923-25 uh, lead to a country that is now 98% Muslim, whereas before the wars happened, Asia Minor had been about 80% Muslim, perhaps less, slightly less than that. So it's a completely different country. And that in turn has its effect also on the uh, economy uh, because with the loss of the Christian minorities, um, there's a tremendous loss of skills, uh, both in, in the sense of artisanal skills as in, let's say, the modern professional um, skills, um, the, the, the accountants, the doctors, uh, the engineers, and so on. Um, and there's a loss of international networks, which had also been dominated by these minorities. So it also means that this empty country is uh, economically far more backward than it had been 10 years earlier. Regarding what happened during the First World War and then in the so-called independence war, we also see that the elites that were in charge of leading these policies regarding populations, Armenian genocide, or the war itself, can we see any correlations between their biographical trajectories and how they perceived Anatolia during this period? Yes, I think we definitely can, uh, because when we look at the leadership uh, of the Young Turk period, particularly, of course, after the Young Turk coup d'etat of January 1913, um, the national struggle period after World War I, and indeed the early republic, we see uh, that overwhelmingly this leadership consists of people with, an, with a background uh, either in Istanbul or in the Balkans or the Aegean. Uh, so that's where they grew up. It's a coherent generation. It's people who were, all of them, born around 1880. 
Um, and that means that they grew up in the Balkans and the Aegean, say between uh, 1880 and 1900, also had their educational and first professional experiences there. So they were shaped by uh, the Balkans of the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. With all that that means, in, uh, particularly in two respects, one is that this was, of course, the area that was uh, modernizing most dramatically in, under the impact of incorporation in, in a European capitalist world, uh, very concretely, in the sense of uh, more traffic, more commerce, uh, establishment of all kind of, of, of novelties, um, street lighting, tramways. So European modernity was visible there more than almost anywhere else in the Ottoman Empire. But so was, of course, the disruptive force of uh, ethnic nationalism. And an ethnic nationalism, whether Greek, Serbian or Bulgarian, uh, in which religious identity played a key role as the ethnic marker, making up the nation. And uh, that was the legacy that when very suddenly and unexpectedly they were kicked out of the Balkans in 1912, they took with them to Anatolia. And uh, it's immediately related to the decision to deport the uh, Greeks uh, of the western coastal areas, also because they fear that the Balkan War may restart. And it's also linked, I think, to their decisions on the deportations of the Armenian population, uh, because they very much feared that what had happened in the Balkans could happen again, but now in Anatolia. When we talk about the Kemalist elite, there's almost complete continuity with the previous era. Yes, sure, had the top leadership had fled the country, people like Enver Talat, Jamal, uh, but under that, um, whether it's in the army or in the bureaucracy, in the legal system, in the educational system, uh, the people who had come to the fore in the previous decade are still all there. Uh, so all these people who lead the struggle from Anatolia, practically without exception, have a background in the Ittihad uh, Teraki, the Union and Progress Party. Um, so that means that their views on um, constructing a solid base for um, either the Ottoman Empire or the new Turkey um, is also taken from that era. Uh, they are deeply convinced that um, to be successful, a state has to be based on national unity and solidarity. And what you then see is, uh, both in the Young Turk era and in the Republic, that there are basically two choices open. Uh, one is to refuse entry to the nation to certain groups, of which the Young Turks and the Kemalists think they can never be part, true part of the nation. So then you're talking about Greeks, mm. Armenians, Jews to a certain extent. Or the other option is, of course, assimilation. And that concerns groups that the Kemalists think can be turned into 
uh, a part of the nation. Yeah. And then you're talking primarily about Kurds, but also about Arabs, for instance. Yeah. And I think this relates quite well to one of the strongest argument that you raised uh, in this uh, first lecture, uh, where you basically stated that in 1923, we observe a completely transformed country, but with a strong continuity in terms of, let's say, human resources in key positions in the yeah. ministries and so on. And maybe to understand uh, this kind of dilemma, it is important to focus on uh, the, the very dense years uh, of uh, the War of Independence, so the period between, let's say, the, um, to put it simply, like the first armistice in the, at the end of World War I and the Treaty of Lausanne. So maybe we can elaborate more on how the power was negotiated between Anatolia and Istanbul, even though those who became the Kemalist elite were part of this old world of Istanbul. Yes, they were. Um, but they waged a struggle, of course, in the name of the national will, right from the start. And so you, you see two things at once in the, um, in the uh, resistance movement uh, that, that wages the War of Independence. On the one hand, they identify with uh, what you could call the old regime. And they identify themselves as part of the Ottoman Empire. And they, both in their proclamations and um, also, for instance, in their celebrations, uh, they show themselves to be fighting for sultanate and caliphate. And the sultan's birthday is celebrated in Ankara, for instance, right up till the end of the of the resistance uh, movement. Um, at the same time, uh, in in a Wilsonian sense, they base themselves on the will of the nation. And um, during the national resistance period, that tension between the two is not really resolved. So although the uh, government in Istanbul declares war on, on the uh, resistance movement and uh, closely collaborates with the um, occupying powers, particularly the British, and they still keep recognizing the Ottoman Empire as the, let's say, this, the entity they're part of. Uh, but at the same time, there, there is a change in the understanding of what that empire is. And that empire, more and more, is the empire of the Turkish Muslims, of the nation of the Turkish Muslims. And so you see a transition, you see a maintenance of the imperial ideology, but under that you see a transformation from what we would see as a classical empire uh, with its, uh, its, its multicultural, multi-ethnic makeup to the idea of the nation-state. And maybe we can frame it in the broader uh, international context that also undergoes dramatic changes in those years with the collapse of other empires uh, in Europe, uh, in, in the Russian Empire, the Austro-Hungarian, and even the German. But also um, th it's a period of very strong social tensions, for example, with the emergence of fascism in Italy. So how did this political elite position uh, itself in regard to this broader context? The big difference, of course, is that in, in all the other... We have to look primarily at the states that lost the war, of course. Yes. In the states that won the war, situation is a bit different. Uh, but the ones that lost the war, Germany, Austro-Hungary, Russia, and the Ottoman Empire, 
uh, in the European continental empires, you see that um, these empires collapse. Uh, they all collapse. Um, they lose their legitimacy and uh, basically a vacuum comes into existence. But that vacuum is filled quickly and successfully by primarily social democrat socialist parties uh, in each of these countries. Um, and that could happen uh, because these were industrialized countries. Even Russia was industrializing fast before World War I. And um, uh, with a labor movement and with developed uh, socialist and social democrat parties that could step into the void. In the Ottoman Empire, there's nobody that can step into mm -hmm. the void. So um, that is because uh, that is the reason that um, the wartime regime can continue to exist to such an extent. There is no viable mm. alternative, and so in that sense, the situation is really uh, different. In in a number of European states, of course, you see a right wing restoration, even sometimes a monarchical restoration yeah. think of hungary for instance uh, but also austria and germany to an extent um but in the immediate post-war period power is taken over by forces of the left those to do not exist in any practical sense in the ottoman empire and that is why the wartime regime under new management continues yeah, and we have arrived now to the point of the foundation of this new state. We will approach uh, important issues regarding the early years of the Turkish Republic. We will be back in a few seconds after a short music break. Welcome back to our podcast, Andreas Guidi and Elif Bejan here talking to Professor Eric Jan Zürcher from Leiden University. Uh, in the first part of the podcast, we um, elaborated on the background of the foundation of the Turkish Republic. And we already mentioned some aspects that we can relate to uh, Kemalism, not just as a movement on the battlefield, but also as an elite that develops new concepts of governance. But now I would maybe draw the attention on the more, let's say, ideological, intellectual side of this issue and address the, the topic of culture and civilization that was also part of, your, of, of one of the lectures you gave here in Paris. Of course, when we um, 
approach this domain, we have to do with a transnational debate on what culture and civilization mean. And this all dates back already to the 19th century at least. And uh, you illustrated how uh, even um, late Ottoman thinkers uh, adopted but also innovated these notions coming from uh, other European countries. One has to think of Asiago Kalp, for mm. example, as one of the uh, ideologues. But you also uh, showed how uh, the notion of culture and civilization undergoes a dramatic transformation in the early 20s uh, with this new regime. So maybe you can also introduce our listeners to, to what happened in this regard. Yes, what I think uh, happens is that, uh, of course, you have this distinction between culture and civilization, which ultimately is taken from uh, German Romantic nationalism. And as in German Romantic nationalism, in the late Ottoman Empire, uh, with uh, people like Zia Gökarp, uh, it is part of a Romantic nationalist worldview. Uh, for Gökarp, uh, the distinction being culture, Hars, and civilization, Medeniet, is one in which he invests uh, his emotional capital in the first, in culture. Um, it's, it's about two things, trying to make the Ottoman Empire and Ottoman society uh, strong again through rediscovery of Turkish culture, original Turkish culture, and also through modernization, by making, through making the Ottoman Empire part of contemporary civilization. But in essence, when you look at uh, Gökalp's work, becoming part of contemporary civilization is a means to an end. It is needed to make the Turkish nation strong. With the Kemalists, um, my feeling is the two are inverted. Mm. Uh, you see still this distinction between culture and um, civilization. Uh, Gökarp's vocabulary survives into the Republic. Um, but when you see what uh, particularly uh, Mustafa Kemal Pasha himself uh, says in his many speeches, you see that the emotional investment is in modernity and civilization. And the key now is for Turkey to leap from a backward civilization, uh, the Islamic, Arab, slash Byzantine one, to the contemporary, modern, European one. Or, as he would say, the universal one. Huh? There is only one contemporary civilization. And that uh, eclipses the culture factor. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, to be... Uh, a strong part of this contemporary civilization, you need to be a nation state as well. Uh, only then can you survive in the modern world. Uh, but the whole emphasis, the whole drive is towards being civilized and modern. And it's that what ex explains the enormous investment in not only secularism, uh, but also uh, the reforms that impact on people's daily lives, uh, when if you were to be a strict reader of Gökarp, uh, things like dress would belong to the culture yeah. sphere. They are people's private life and they should be rooted in culture. Not so for the Kabbalists. Uh, the dress reform is argued by the, uh, from the argument of civilization. We need to do this 
to become civilized. So there is this, uh, the vocabulary is still there, but the relative importance of the two uh, changes. Yeah, and as you mentioned, this impacts on uh, several spheres of society. You mentioned language, but we can also think of gender roles. And I think we can sum this up on these two axes that somehow uh, were implicit in your reply. We have this kind of diachronic dimension of civilization as related to progress and becoming closer to what is contemporary. But then there is also the factor of distinction, what distinguishes one culture from the other. And I remember from the discussion during uh, this uh, third lecture, uh, a point raised by François Georgeon, who was also present, saying that basically um, we should not think of this as something completely coherent or linear, because in the 1930s we see other changes in this regard when we look at the other from the point of view of, uh, of Kemalist Turkey, namely uh, the West or, or Europe, there is a sense of crisis of a pre-existing civilization, right? There is, um, but for the, for the Kemalists, of course, this, this relationship with, with Europe is always a very complex one because the, the, the Ottoman heritage means that uh, Europe is always uh, an example and an enemy. Yeah. In current Turkey, of course, contemporary Turkey, now um, the uh, second element is more, more prevalent, more visible, huh? Europe as the enemy. But it's not an invention of Erdogan. It's always been there. It's always been this double meaning. Uh, Europe is a threat as well as an example. So there are fluctuations in yeah. that, definitely. Um, where, where the relationship between culture, Turkish nationalist culture and and civilization are concerned, you can certainly see in the 1930s a shift where uh, culture again becomes yeah. more important. But there's also the element that in order to argue for civilization from a nationalist perspective, it has to be shown that this contemporary civilization um, has historic roots in mm. Turkish uh, culture as well. And so uh, when, um, let's say, uh, when, when, when um, transformations, uh, changes are advocated, they are very often advocated with reference to Turkish history and culture, which make the Turks, as it were, natural recipients of this contemporary civilization, and indeed will allow them to transcend it. Because that is also, and Francois uh, pointed that out too, and he's right, and when you look at uh, speeches in the 1930s, you often see that the Kemalists not only claim to become part of contemporary civilization, but to lead it. Yeah. And maybe you can uh, just give a, a brief example of what happened in, in the ground. I mean, what was the sort of mediator that was uh, supposed to implement this war view also at the local level? For example, uh, maybe the most prominent uh, uh, measure was the foundation of the people's houses, right? The Halkevleri. Yes. Maybe you can briefly introduce our listeners to, to this uh, institution. Yeah, the, the people's houses are, uh, let's say, the the arm of, uh, the cultural and social arm of the single party, the Republican People's Party. And from 1932, they are tasked with uh, spreading the Kemalist ideology uh, under the population. Um, 
But, of course, uh, study of the people's houses, uh, as indeed recent studies of um, a variety of, of Kamala's reforms, um, have shown that um, it would be wrong to to analyze the process purely in a top-down manner, uh, just to think about what Ankara wanted these people houses to do or wanted the reforms to accomplish. Um, instead, uh, detailed research on the ground, on the actual um, effects of the, uh, of the reforms, shows that there's a lot of negotiation going on uh, between uh, local elites and the center, and local elites from two different sides, uh, you could say traditional elites, but also um, local representatives of the Kamalist regime and the Kamalist worldview. Uh, local doctors, teachers, uh, sports clubs, women's clubs are very often also the engine behind these reforms. And uh, talking about bottom-up approach, in your work, you use sources such as travelers' diaries and some um, reports regarding what happened in Anatolia. So maybe it could be interesting to discuss a little bit more about what happened on the ground. Yeah, that, that, that is certainly useful because um, uh, to, to observers um, from the West... Um, you know, there, there was a huge fascination in this new phenomenon of the of the republic. It's a new secular republic that that tried to become part of Western civilization, and what that produced is an overemphasis on the program and ideology of the Kemalists and on their achievements in the big cities, particularly in Ankara, uh, which was the showcase of the regime. And um, that's, of course, the way the Kamalists wanted it themselves as well. So it was a product of both Kamalist policy and of um, Western prejudice, you might say. Um, relatively rare are the authentic reports on what happened in the countryside, in the provincial towns and in the villages, because very few people went there. It was pretty inaccessible still until the 1950s, and the interest simply wasn't there. So when you get a view of what was happening in the countryside, it often um, contrasts very sharply with the image produced by the type of literature that's based only on the Kemalist program and on Ankara. You see, for instance, that um, simple thing like electricity, only reaches the major towns of the eastern half of Turkey by the end of the 30s. Uh, you see that uh, roads are still in very bad repair, so uh, beyond Ankara, further to the east, uh, average road speeds are something like 15 kilometers an hour. Um, that tells you something about tra transport. You see, even in post-war post-World War II reports that um, almost no village has a road that uh, is usable the year round. You see that uh, the uh, older city centers still have no um, um, drainage. So all kinds of, of realities then suddenly open up 
are visible that, that you know, uh, escape you before. And maybe for those of our listeners who don't know this work, I think a useful reference is uh, Michael Meeker's A Nation of Empire, right? To show that it took actually decades and new uh, tools and new uh, approaches in terms also of field work to really make sense of how this imperial legacy went through the Kemalist period and actually yes. even after World War II, which is connected, of course, to local relations of power. Yeah, there are a few other examples as well. Uh, what we have is uh, reports of European travelers, uh, which can be individuals or can be members of committees like the American advisory committees that, that visit Turkey extensively after World War II. Um, another um, you know, potential source uh, to, to, to break through this top-down vision is indeed the work of anthropologists, not just Mika, also Richard Robinson, for instance. Um, but Mika is particularly important uh, because he uh, has a, a very novel vision on the way continuities uh, uh, between empire and republic play out uh, in the local uh, context. Um, so uh, we, we, we do have that. And then I would say in the last 10 years, there's been a lot more research that uh, privileges the local situation to understand yeah. how change was happening, uh, actually happening, rather than being dreamt of in, in Ankara. And regarding this issue, you also mentioned in one of your lectures that Turkey was seen as an example for modernization. And um, I was wondering if we can see Turkey as a modern country in that sense? Well, not by the end of the, the, the single party period. Uh, um, the whole debate on, on modernization and the, uh, the hegemony of the modernization paradigm is something that dates from the 1950s and is very much informed by American uh, anxieties, American anxieties about uh, one particular issue uh, that all over the world uh, with decolonization mm. new uh, countries are becoming independent and that almost none of them seem to look at capitalist development as the way forward. In the context of the Cold War that creates a lot of anxiety in Washington and that is the reason why they start to think about Alternatives. How can we propose a viable capitalist development model? And ultimately, that is uh, theorized by Walt Rostow in his Five Stages of Economic Growth, which is he posits as an anti-Marxist uh, manifesto. But uh, indeed, uh, he does that by 1960. But uh, the particular policies that he advocates and the whole view of development had been very much in evidence already in the 1950s. And in that context, yes, uh, Turkey is seen as an example, uh, particularly the Turkey of the 1950s, uh, which under the Democrats, the successors of uh, Ataturk's party after 1950, really uh, tried to embrace this, this particular uh, American-inspired uh, kind of, of development. Yeah, and you showed very well uh, that 
a modernization theory, as probably most of uh, theories, are at the same time descriptive and prescriptive. And I wonder in this uh, context whether there were also uh, voices from Turkey that engage in the debate of what modernization should look like, what a modern country should look like, not just in, um, let's say, in, in the political realm, but also in, the, in terms of scientific production, for example. Um, yes, uh, and there, the, there, is a, the, there is a significant shift uh, between, the, let's say, the single-party period, the early republic, and um, the, uh, uh, the 1950s and after, uh, where uh, the whole view of what development is about uh, changes. Um, and, um, but when you, when you specifically asked about, uh, ask about the, the, the role of science and knowledge, until really uh, quite late, uh, I think the um, role accorded to science and knowledge and expertise uh, in Turkey transcends the political changes. And um, to understand that, we, we have to look at the enormously heavy imprint of positivism uh, on the generation that created the Republic. And that has, has left an enormous imprint on Turkey. This enormous value attached to expert knowledge as uh, the engine for change. Of course, that, and Turkey's not alone in that, but um, yeah, in recent years that has changed uh, because now in uh, an increasingly Islamist-dominated uh, Turkey, uh, science is more and more also identified with an enemy world huh, with the West. It's defined as not being universal, but Western. And uh, there are more and more calls for uh, diminishing the role of uh, what is now seen as Western science and uh, replacing it with Islamic science, whatever that may mean. Uh, but um, for a very long time, the idea that science and knowledge uh, were drivers for uh, development um, was very strong in Turkey, exceptionally strong even. I think we can conclude our discussion here because otherwise we're going to go until 2017 and long durée as a historical narrative. I would like to thank you because you showed us all the developments that we can observe from the late 19th century till 1950s and you showed us how Turkey is embedded in the in the broader framework of what happened in Europe in the first years of the 20th century but also how Turkey has its continuities regarding Ottoman Empire and what happened in the late years of the Ottoman Empire so thank you also on my side, Professor Zürcher. It has been a terrific episode, I think, and we are already looking forward to meeting you again here in Paris or in Leiden to continue our discussion. So thanks for being part of the Southeast Passage and the Ottoman History Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was 
fun. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Elif, as well, for being part of the discussion. Uh, let me just remind our listeners that we uh, will provide a short bibliography on this topic. And uh, Professor Tuscher will also um, uh, upload some uh, visual material to integrate our discussion. And this is all for today. So until next time, take care. <laughs>